All right, so if you're guests with us, uh, we're in 2 Timothy, uh, and I get to close out the book, so we get to close out 2 Timothy. For the previous three weeks, we had a couple of pastors um, teach uh, or preach the sermons, um, pastors who have pastored churches for some time, and they have a whole lot of Sunday morning messages under their belt, um, and then we come to this week. <laughs> I am not one of those guys. So um, I think it's critically important that we open up in prayer. So can we bow our heads, please? Father, those in this room, Lord, like me, we're just people. And Lord, at times we're weak people. So I pray, first Holy Spirit, that you would put your word on my lips. And second, Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to life in the hearts and minds of those in this room. This morning, I endeavor to share important things, but without your interaction, Holy Spirit, no one in this room will be changed. So I cry out this morning that you would do what you do best, and that is to illuminate Jesus, the Father, and to draw us more towards them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been working our way through 2 Timothy, and we've seen some themes. One is suffering. The other is hold fast to the truth. And the third is preaching the word. And as I read my assigned passage this week, we're going to see much the same. So I'm assigned 2 Timothy 3.10 through chapter 4, verse 5. And it's interesting, my section starts right in the middle of chapter 3. And Scott did a fantastic job last week of going through verses 1 through 9 in 2 Timothy 3. So it's verse 3.10, it starts out, it says, you, however, in the 3.14, it says, but as for you. So in order to really do those verses justice, I think we need to take just a couple of minutes out and go back and go through verses 1 through 9 once again, just to remind ourselves. And what we're going to see here is there's quite the contrast in 2 Timothy chapter 3. The first half of 2 Timothy talks about godliness in the world. Godlessness, excuse me. Godlessness in the world. The second half talks about godliness and what that looks like, right? It gives us a contrast. And another way to look at it is it really is we read the remaining verses in, in, in this scripture we're going to see that God kind of gives us, it's an us and them type of contrast. And whenever we say us and them in a church, we have to be so careful, so careful church. Us and them is not social, economic discrepancy. It's not, it's not race. It's not demographics. There's only, there is only one us and them in the Bible. And the us are those who are covered by the blood of Jesus. They belong to God. They're God's that's us. Anybody who has come under the blood of Jesus, submitted their heart to Jesus, he is their Lord. They're adopted into the family of God. The Holy Spirit has filled them. That's the us. But we have those people who haven't yet experienced that, and that's the them. And I have to make that, that fairly clear as we go in and read this passage. So we look at 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 9. But understand this that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, says the voice of people. Okay, so this scripture we're speaking, kingdom we're speaking, this is them. But I, I really want to take just one moment out again to reiterate the us and them thing. Many of us, myself included, would read that section of scripture and kind of say, oh, thank, thank God I'm not like that, right? But, but I, I just want us to caution ourselves because if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, if it wasn't for his life in us, if it wasn't for his Holy Spirit, we would be those things, right? So let's not have a lofty, a high attitude or spirit about this. Let's remember why we're different. And Paul is going to certainly address this with Timothy moving forward. For among them, in verse 6, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was with those two men. So not only do people live a life this way, they're clearly identified, but there's others that actually lead them into living this way. But in the end, Paul tells Timothy, he tells him this, he says, but they directly oppose the truth of God. That's what it's all about. They just oppose the truth of God. And in the next, now I'm getting into 2 Timothy 3.10, that through 4.5, we're going to talk about that. So again, we have us and them. Us only by the grace of God. That's the only thing that keeps us from being them. It says, but by the grace of God. For me personally, I didn't come to God until I was in my 20s. For me, it was before the grace of God. Because before that, I was in the group that had verses 1 through 9. So 2 Timothy 3.10. This is Paul. He's speaking to his, his adopted son, Timothy, his disciple. Paul now has spent many years with Timothy. Timothy joined Paul, as, as we've heard in previous pre- sermons, when, when he was 16 years old. So for many years, he's been with Paul. This is Paul closing out. This is, remember, this is the last chapter, or the last book that Paul writes before he leaves this earth. So it's very important, these things he's telling Timothy. It's 2 Timothy 3.10. It says, You, Timothy, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Timothy, you've seen my character. You've seen what I have preached and what I have taught year after year after year. Timothy, you've seen my conduct. You've seen that my life, the way I live, is aligned with the very word that I'm preaching. Timothy, you've seen all this. Hold on to that, Timothy. Verse 11, he says, My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. 
Let's just take a moment here. So Paul has been shipwrecked. Paul was stoned and beaten, left for dead outside the city. He's faced quite a few persecutions and sufferings. And what, was, what did Paul say? He said, I endured. I endured. So sometimes if you're going through some suffering for Christ, if you're going through persecutions, your victory doesn't have to be, a, you know, like if, if, oh man, that was nothing. I beat that thing to no end. I'll take that again. You know, this, this was nothing to me. No, no, Paul doesn't say that. Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says, yet I endured. Sometimes your victory is just enduring. That's your victory sometimes. It says, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Note to Timothy, he's writing this from a jail cell. And he's about to, he's about to leave this earth. So how can Paul, in good conscience, write that yet from them all the Lord has rescued me? I think that depends on what your definition of rescue is. How many of us today, we have trouble saying the Lord rescued me until whatever situation we were in, we were pulled out. Is that our definition today of rescue? That Paul is whatever tough condition that we're in, that, that, that he's removed it, he's pulled us out of it. I, I see something different here in Paul's writing to Timothy. He's still sitting in a jail cell, knowing he's about to be executed. He says, yet the Lord rescued me. Well, I think Paul's victory is that the Lord was standing right here with me. As I write these very words, the Lord, he's standing here with me in the middle of this as I was stoned and left out the city. And I got back up and I walked in. The Lord was with me. That's his victory. That's Paul's victory. And Paul starts to double down. This is where it gets fun. Verse 12, he says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's that coin. All who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. It doesn't say could be, might be, right? It says will be. The world hates us for who we follow. John 15, 19 says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. I don't know about you guys, but so much of me, I, I want the world to like me because I feel like, hey, I'll be a better witness for Christ. They'll receive my words better, right? It's a false expectation because if I'm living a godly life in Christ Jesus, Scripture is very clear. The world will hate me. So I just need to re understand that and go about my mission of proclaiming the gospel to the world and expect that they're not going to love me when I'm doing so. Verse 13, Paul really doubles down. He says, While evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's, going, that's only one direction. So, Living Hope Church, buckle up. Buckle up. I mean, Paul says here, he says, it's, it's not going to get better. It's only going to go from bad to worse. Then we get to verse 14. Now, verse 14, I think, Paul is directly referencing verse 12 where he tells Timothy that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Because in verse 14 it says, But Timothy, but Timothy, as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Can't you see a father speaking to his son? He's saying, Timothy, continue in, remain in, stay in, don't leave, Timothy. 
don't leave what you've learned and what you firmly believed. When this persecution comes, Timothy, stay strong. Because the, the part knowing from whom you learned, it really kind of functions as an argument. That, that Paul uses that as an argument to stay in. Timothy has learned it from Paul. He has learned it from Lois and Eunice, his mother and grandmother. He's seen these things. So, so Paul is telling Timothy, being, he's saying, be, be slow, Timothy. Be slow to walk away from the teaching you've had all these years. Verse 15, it says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. We just mentioned that Timothy's mother and grandmother, as you've heard in previous sermons, were Jewish. They taught Timothy the Scriptures from the time he was young. This is a specific reference to the Old Testament when it talks about the sacred writings. This, this Greek word for which are able is interesting. That which are able, that the Greek word is used. The efficacy of that word means not only in the past, but at the present. It makes you able, Timothy. It's kept you able and it makes you able today. But we need to note that Paul does something very important here. He finishes it for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul emphasizes that faith in Jesus Christ is essential for the correct use of the Old Testament. So we know that the Old Testament, all the Scripture, it all points to Christ. But it's faith in Christ Jesus that goes back and it brings to life the Old Testament. It illuminates it, right? We, if we read the Old Testament outside of Christ Jesus, it doesn't do anything for us. It's through Christ Jesus. It's in Christ Jesus that we interpret, that we understand that the Old Testament comes alive. And Paul makes sure to point that out to Timothy. So verses 10 through 15 can be summed up this way. Paul says, So Timothy, it is the gospel, it is the word of God that is the difference between us and them. Those that are of God have God's word. That's our plumb line. It's our foundation. That's what we use as we're going to see further for teaching instruction. And those that do not know God and do not have and cherish and value the Word of God, they're the, uh, the group that Paul speaks to. So that takes us to 2 Timothy 3.16. You all have heard this verse many a times. But it starts out with, All Scripture is breathed out by God. And this is where we're going to spend some time today, the next 15 or so minutes. All Scripture, get this, it's breathed out by God. This, every bit of this. Source isn't, although it was written by men, it was the Holy Spirit that superintended on them what they should write. It's, it's breathed out by God. This is, this is God's very words in front of us, and we need to remember that. Just picture that. God, he breathed out Scripture. This is where it came from. It's very important because we're going to see this here more. So when we talk about God breathed or breathed out by God, it's two, two other places in Scripture that really comes to mind. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and a man became a living creature. So God took this dust from the ground and kind of formed it up, and he, he breathed into the nostrils of Adam. And when he did, man was created. 
man became alive. He breathed the breath of life into Adam. This is God-breathed, no different than God-breathing Scripture. Jesus was crucified, and he died and buried, and he was resurrected. And, and the, 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 the apostles, they were in a room, and they had the door shut, and they're trying to figure out what's going on, and Jesus, with the door shut, just shows up in the room. And I'm going to pick up halfway through that. In John 20, 21 through 22, Jesus says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said, Receive the Holy Spirit. So we have God breathing into Adam's nostrils to bring life. Then we have Jesus has been crucified. He's dead. The apostles are trying to figure out what's going on. Jesus shows up, and what does he do? He breathes into them the Holy Spirit. That's how he chose to deliver that. So when we read 2 Timothy 3.16 and we say all Scripture or the Word of God is breathed out by God, can you understand the power behind this? This is why it's so important to us. So the origin of the Word of God is found within God Himself. It was God-breathed. God just didn't act and then let humans fill in the blanks. He superintended the writing through his word by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came into the apostles. So let's finish chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Now, does that, now do you understand that? And because of that, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for, for correction and righteousness, or excuse me, correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It is the word of God that completes man. It's not what saves man. We know that what saves man is faith in Jesus Christ. His blood covers us. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit fills us. The Holy Spirit is inside of us. But it's the word of God that directs us. It directs us in how we interact with the church, and the word of God directs us in how we interact with the world. We are completed by the word of God. Without the Word of God, we are incomplete according to Scripture. We have to have this. It has to be inside of us. It has to be every part of us. So that being said, let's take a walk. I, I want to step away from Second Timothy for, for just a few minutes, and we're going to walk through the lineage of the Word of God. We're going to step back and just bring a little bit of theology in here. I promise I'll, I'll keep it within 10 to 12 minutes. But I think this is important because the way that Paul closes out Second Timothy, this is critically important for us to know. So the Word of God, the Word of God really takes on two forms. The first is the form of Word of God as a person. The second is the Word of God as speech. That's the two forms. If we were to take a theological study of the Word of God, that's what we're going to come up with. So the Bible refers to Jesus as the Word of God. In Revelation 19.13, John sees Jesus in heaven and he says this. He says, this is John seeing Jesus in heaven. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is what? The Word of God. He is called the Word of God. Jesus, in divine character and person, is the Word of God. Likewise, the Gospel of John opens up with this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And to eliminate any confusion who that might be, in verse 14, John goes through and says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. So Jesus is the Word of God. The second form we talked about was the Word of God as speech. And there's four different ways this happens. The first is God's decree. So what is a decree of God? A decree of God is when God just says something and it happens. God decrees it. So the first example we see of that is in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1 it says, And God said, let there be light. Boom, there is light. That's a decree of God. That's the first form we get is God is speech. The second way we get it, oh, excuse me, I, let me step back. It wasn't just creation. It's still happening today. God's decree. Because if we go to Hebrews 1.3, this is God the Son. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. By the word of His power. God's decrees. First, first, first way. Second way is, it's called personal address. This is when God speaks directly to human beings. God sometimes communicates with people on earth by speaking directly to them. One of the earliest instances of this is when God told Adam in Genesis, and the Lord commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God is speaking to man. Another example is when God gave the Ten Commandments, and God spoke these words in Exodus and says, I am the Lord your God. He said that to Moses. In Matthew 3.16, when Jesus was baptized and immediately came up out of the water, behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. These, these examples, they show us that human beings, people, audibly heard the voice of God, and it was immediately comprehensible. They understood what it meant. So the use, the use of human language, God using human language, did not diminish, diminish the word's character or authority in any way that they were absolutely trustworthy. So just because they were in human language did not diminish authority. But because these words have divine authority, they place an unconditional obligation on the hearer to believe them and to do them. In this next sentence, you're going to hear three more times in my sermon. To disbelieve or disobey these words was to disbelieve or disobey God himself because these words came from God. They were God-breathed. The third way, God's word is speech through human lips. Many places in Scripture we read that God raised prophets and he chose to put him words in, the, in them and speak through them to other people. God is continuing to speak in a comprehensible human language, but instead of uttering the words himself to the people, he chooses to do it via a human being, a prophet. Okay, we're seeing this lineage. God's decrees. God speaks directly to man. Now God's speaking to, in this case, prophets, words that are to be spoken to other people. Jeremiah 1.7 says, But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. A little later in verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. So all this means that God's words spoken through human lips were considered to be just as authoritative and just as true as God's words spoken by himself. 
through his own lips. There is no diminishing or authority because God chose to use a human being and send him through the human being to other people. And here's my sentence. To disbelieve or disobey any of these words was to disbelieve or disobey God himself. Can you see the lineage of how we're going down through here? Last one, fourth way. The word of God in written form. Right? This thing right here. In addition to the words of decree, the words of personal address, in addition to God speaking through prophets to get his word out to other people, there are several instances in Scripture where these words are written down. Exodus 24 says, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. This is what we know as the law. Exodus 24, 7. Then he, being Moses, he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, this is, this is, how, this is what the people, this is how they understood that these words written down that Moses read were coming directly from God because their response was, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Because they understood it to be the very words of God himself. Isaiah 38 God commanded Isaiah, and now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. God said, Isaiah, take these words I'm giving you. Write them in a book so that they can be a witness forever. It will be passed down from generation to generation. Again, God said to Jeremiah, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. Then we come to the New Testament. Jesus promises his disciples He says that his Holy Spirit would come in the Father's name and would bring remembrance of the words he spoke to the apostles. Why? So they could write them down and record them for us. Paul can say that the very words that he writes are a command of the Lord. Peter references Paul's writings after he digs Paul a little bit and says, hey, they're a little difficult, but nonetheless, they're scripture. Peter refers to Paul's writings as scriptures. So these words, even though they were written by human beings in a human language, are still considered God's own words and are absolutely authoritative and true. So you see the lineage all the way it comes down from God to what we have today. And here's my sentence again. To disbelieve or disobey any of these words is to disbelieve or disobey God himself. So knowing this lineage of the Word of God, let's go back and let's read 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 one more time. Okay? Remember, it's God's direct Word that is breathed toward us. So 2 Timothy 3, 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Does that make... Does that... Do you see that now maybe in just a little bit of a different light after we've gone through the lineage? All Scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the God, man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So 2 Timothy 4, we're headed there now, is Paul's last written chapter before he leaves this earth. So if you only had one chapter to write, what would you write, Right? So my assigned verses are 1 through 5. But for us to really grasp what it means in 1 through 5, I, I want to quickly read verses 6 through 8 because here 
you get to hear Paul's heart, the emotional part of him, right? Paul sometimes is very stoic in his writing and his commands. Verse 6 says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who loved us appearing. That's to you guys. How can Paul say that? How can Paul be so confident that there's a crown of righteousness just waiting for him? What has Paul done these last many, many years, right? He has preached and taught God, preached and taught God, the Word of God. That's been his mission. That's been his focus. That's why he has the confidence he has. But remember, the reward is not only available to him, it's also available to anybody who has their eyes on the tor- toward the coming God. So, okay, so let's go back to verse 1 as we start to close this out. Paul tells Timothy, after all this, everything they've been through, this is what he tells Timothy, I charge you, I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. So stop for a second. What an audience. Paul is saying, in the presence of God, in the presence of Jesus, the Son of God, I give you this. I give you this charge, Paul. I mean, let me ask you today, if you found yourself standing right now and you had God the Father to the right, God the Son to your left, and they looked at you and said, okay, you've got one last thing to say to this person next to you inside this church. What would you say? This is what Paul's declaring. What would you tell him? This is what Paul told him. Paul says, preach the word. Everything I've said, Timothy, it boils down to this. Preach the word. And the Greek word here used for preach is caruso. This is really important to understand. Caruso means to herald something, right? To announce with with great voice, with great fervor, to say out loud, you're going to herald something, you're going to announce it. We see in some of the old movies, in the city square, everybody's assembled together doing their business, and a guy comes in, and he heralds the news of today. He tells them, hey, this is, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Google, they didn't have a newspaper. The herald would explain, this is what's happening, this is the news. Pay attention, people. Heralds were not philosophers. They weren't teachers. They had one job, to tell the people of the day what's happened, what's happening. So it is interesting that Paul uses that verb. He looks at Timothy, he says, proclaim, herald, preach the word of God. And what does that look like for us? We don't have to be theologians when we say preach the word. What do we herald? When we're in the church, let me, let me take a side step. We're having a Sunday meeting. We're going through the Word of God. Tuesday night, we have a Bible study. We're digging in the Word of God. What I'm talking about now is the world. It's to them when we're out in the world. What does it mean to herald or to preach the Word of God? You don't have to be a theologian. But what you do say is you say, listen, I was a wreck. I was dead. I was a mess. But, you know, God sent Jesus down to this earth. God the Father sent his Son who lived a perfect life, whereas I haven't. 
He lived a perfect life, committed no sin, yet they crucified him and they killed him. And he did that sinless to take on my sins. He died. He was resurrected. He lives in heaven now. And he sits at the right hand of the Father. And I, I am now because I've put my faith in Christ Jesus. Because he is my Lord. I'm adopted into the family. I'm filled with his Holy Spirit. My life is dramatically changed. You're heralding, heralding, you're telling people what has been done. So our message to Living Hope Church as Christians, our message to the world is not to tell them what to do or what not to do. Our message shouldn't be, you shouldn't watch those movies. You shouldn't get drunk. That's not our message to the world. Our message to the world is we herald the grace of Jesus Christ. We, we, we herald the gospel. That's what we tell the world. Our mission of Christians is to tell of Jesus Christ and his message of grace. And we're to do this both when it's comfortable and uncomfortable. That takes us to verse 2. It says, Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. The Bible will do the lifting. But what I want you to really see in, in verse 2 here, he says, do it with complete patience. That's the hard part, isn't it? We are to herald the news of Christ to a people who quite possibly hate us. But we're to do so with great patience. It's because of our faith in Christ. It's the heart that he's put in us for the lost. We continue to herald that message. Verse 3-5 says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, which will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off in a mist. Okay, so we circle back around. We're back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Remember those verses? This is what he's saying. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure. Well, guess what? The time is here. The end times that Paul spoke of earlier is between the first and the second coming of Jesus. We're here. We are in the end times. So as we heard the verses of the godliness, godlessness in verses 1 through 9, that, that's happening today. One more time, the difference between what Paul sees as us is the people of God, those submitted to God, those redeemed by God and who belong to God. And the them, the people that were to go out and proclaim the gospel to, is the them. It's the people who do not know God. This thread of the word of God has been through all of Second Timothy. In chapter 1, Timothy describes the word of God as the coming pattern of sound words. In chapter 2, he describes the word of God as the good deposit, the word of truth. Chapter 3, he describes the word of God as the sacred writings. In chapter 4, he addresses the word of God as preach it, preach the word of God. Worship team, if, if you want to come up, I'm going to bring this thing to a close. This all funnels to one thing. So Paul writes to Timothy and the Living Hope Church, your primary ministry is the ministry of the Word of God. That is your primary ministry. You may serve on the worship team. You may serve in kids' church. You may serve in a team that prepares all the communion stuff for us. But your primary ministry is the Word of God. That's a primary ministry because the Word of God is, is what you minister to yourself with. 
The Word of God is what we minister to one another. When it says reprove, correct, rebuke, train in righteousness, that's all done via the Word of God. And when we speak to the world, when we speak to those outside of us, it's the Word of God. The Word of God is your primary ministry. This next sentence, I plagiarized from somebody, I have no idea who. It's in my phone. I came across it some number of months ago and it's still there. It says the Word of God does the work of God and the people of God by the Spirit of God. It is so true. The Word of God does the work of God and the people of God, and He does it by the Spirit of God. I spent seven years in the military. Some in this room, I think, have retired from the military. I only did seven. They kicked me out, but... uh, I love military analogies, so I'm going to close with this. This is how I'm going to close. The book of Joshua, I love it. I love the book of Joshua. He was tasked with taking the people to the promised land. As he was preparing to bring Israel to the promised land, a land full of enemies and people who did not serve Yahweh, there would be fierce battles and tests ahead for him and God's people. So in the first chapter of Joshua, Within four verses, God repeats the same phrase three times. Verses six through nine. Three times God tells Joshua, he says, be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and courageous. Joshua, be strong and courageous. And right in the middle of those verses, we have Joshua 1.8. So how is is that, Timothy? How is Joshua and his people going to be strong and courageous? Joshua 1.8. It says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. But you shall meditate on it day and night to be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For when you do, you will make your way prosperous. And then you will find good success. Joshua needed the Word of God. Paul spent his life preaching and teaching the Word of God. His last words before he leaves to Timothy is, Preach the Word of God. While Joshua was preparing his people for the promised land, his mission, if you are in Christ Jesus today, if you're a child of God, the blood of Jesus just covers you all over the place. You've already entered the promised land. So I would argue you have a different mission than Joshua. Here's your mission, as I believe it. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of age. Mm. Thank you. It is. That is that is our command. And how do we do this? Paul Paul. Paul just told us in 2 Timothy, we do it by enduring suffering. We do it by holding fast to Scripture and the work that God has done in us. And we do it by preaching the Word. Living Hope Church and each one of you individually, you faithfully fulfill your ministry when you faithfully communicate God's Word to the glory of Christ Jesus and for the advancement of his church.
So just as Paul left a charge to Timothy, I'm going to leave a charge for you. And this charge is coming from the ESV. That's the English Standard Version, not the Elswick Standard Version. It's 2 Timothy 4.1. You've heard it already. Here's my charge, Living Hope Church. It says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. We know that He's with us now. He's in this meeting right now. I charge you in the presence of, the very presence of God who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom to preach the Word. Preach the Word. 